Let's begin our evening time of instruction in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we are humbled to consider that you sent your own Son to redeem us from our awful sins. Help us to be a worshipful people. And indeed, that's the concern of our presentation tonight, that we that we preach the gospel that is used of you as you seek worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And so we ask that the blessed Holy Spirit will illumine the page of Scripture, help us to understand the truth and to apply it to our lives. And we ask that as Dr. Garner speaks to us this evening, that he will help us in our goal to be a faithful church faithful to the cause of God and truth. And Father, we are humbled at the privilege that we have of studying the truth and telling others about Christ. Thank you, Father, for loving us with a love that is everlasting. Thank you, the Son, for your death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, your intercession, the promise of your coming. And thank you, blessed Holy Spirit, for tenderly and effectually applying the work of Christ to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are very privileged to have Dr. David Garner with us to give instruction this evening on the insider movement. Uh, David is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and he is very pleased to be here in Florida Um, in large measure because of you, but also because of the weather. (laughs) He has served as a missionary in Bulgaria. He is on the pastoral staff also at Proclamation Presbyterian in Philadelphia. And he is the leading author of the PCA study in two parts on the insider movement about which he is now going to come and speak. And we are so very pleased to have you, David. God bless you. Thank you. Well, good evening. Thank you all for coming this evening. I'm really privileged to be here. And the only qualification that I might make about what David said, I'm not sure whether it's you that's made me happy or the weather. I won't tell you which one is better. Um, In all seriousness, it is a joy to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ this weekend here in Florida. I, as I said to the church this morning in, in Tampa, I left 250,000 of my closest friends with no power in Philadelphia when I left. Uh, we had been out for about a day and a half ourselves. Thankfully, our power came back, but it is, it's really cold in the winter when you don't have heat. So, uh, yes, we appreciate the warm weather. Uh, we have a, a very important topic to address tonight. It is perhaps not familiar to you. How many of you have ever heard of an insider movement? Okay, a good number of you. Um, It is somewhat like a Latin phrase to others. You probably have heard it before, but you have no idea what it means. Um, An insider movement. I want to talk about that tonight. I want to expose you to what it is. And I hope through the course of our discussion this evening 
that you will learn something, but I actually want you to not only learn about insider movements and what they are around the world, but you're actually going to be exposed to an underlying paradigm that is not too distant from your own world. And you will begin to see how some of the effects and transitions of postmodernism uh, have affected missions and missiology as well. Just want to introduce this briefly by, by looking uh, at uh, a couple of, of pictures here. This is the front cover of a book by Carl Medeiros. Um, some of you may know of him. He is not actually um, and a very, uh, would not align himself, I guess, with insider movements. However, what you will find with Medeiros is that the theology that drives insider movements is what drives him. What makes his approach to ministry in Islamic context um, so, well, on the one level intriguing and on another level dangerous is actually the very winsomeness by which he presents his, his arguments. Another feature of this debate is that it has actually moved from the back wings to the very front of the table for Christians. Some of you may have seen the January 2013 edition of Christianity Astray, excuse me, Christianity (laughs) Today, and that particular issue is one that actually profiled Jesus in the mosque. And that particular issue actually interviewed those who were involved in insider movements. I won't tell you, perhaps by the label I gave the magazine, may give you a hint about what I thought about these articles. Um, But it is just the fact that people are beginning to be exposed to this in some fresh ways. How should we think then about the relationship, if there is any, between Christianity and Islam? Or maybe put more explicitly, is the God of Islam the same God as the God of Scripture? Is the gospel something that can be added to Islam, or is it something paradigmatically, categorically other? Let's explore this a bit, beginning with the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 1. I won't take time tonight to walk you through the Uh, the entire context of this passage. We're going to dive right in into chapter 1 here at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The Apostle Paul is deeply concerned that the pure gospel of Jesus be that which is preached. In fact, what he will do is contend that he is really not as concerned about the motive for which it is preached. He wants to be sure that the gospel preached 
is the pure gospel. Why? Because anything else, Paul argues, is damning. The stakes are pretty high. The church is responsible to be faithful to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. By way of introduction to our discussion on insider movements, let me provide a brief history in the study of missions, or what has been called in recent years, missiology. That is the study of missions. It is not the study of missionaries. That would be its own unique study, uh, in some cases quite peculiar. And I can say that as a former missionary. Um, But this is the study of missions, the paradigm of missions. How should we think about entering in to a foreign culture in a foreign land, speaks a foreign language, how do we go about communicating faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ in those contexts? And those who have studied missions have, have laid out before us the fact that the modern missions movement, for whatever good it did, modern missiologists have complained about a number of things. The, the first one is the blind spot of what is sometimes called imperialism. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you may have traveled around the world. Perhaps you've been in a straw hut in Africa somewhere, and you gather with others in that community to worship, and you actually discover that in that worship service... It is exactly the same in your language. You might sing Amazing Grace. Well, missiologists have said, well, that is actually an importation of tradition, of culture, of Western culture that is actually being forced into these contexts and has not reckoned with the cross-cultural nature of the gospel. And what has been confused is the Christian message with the trappings associated with our own culture. To be sure, there is some guilt associated with that, though I would say that the modern missions movement as we know it, starting in the 19th century, entering into the 20th, is one of the most staggeringly wonderful phases of the Christian church. The... Church, then, in quotation marks, as missiologists have contended, is something that needs to be driven not by Western ideas, but needs to be driven by the cultural context into which we enter. We will come back to that a little bit later. One of the other features of this, and this has gotten a lot more attention actually in the last 10 years, and that is the term Christian. It is indeed the case in certain Muslim contexts around the world, if you were to live there or could understand Arabic or one of the other tongues spoken in one of these Muslim lands, you would discover that many people associate the term Christian with Hollywood, with sexual immorality. And so that the label Christian has been corrupted because those in other parts of the world think of America as Christian, and what they see from America is pornography. What they see from America is perversion. So the word Christian has been corrupted. It has actually raised questions then, is this a term that should enter into missions in other contexts around the world? Should each people that come to Christ call themselves Christians? Well, in the study of missiology has been the question, what did our forefathers do wrong? Two things. One here is extraction. Missionaries were encouraging divisions in families, as the argument goes. 
the isolation of new converts from their religious and social networks. So therefore, what has taken place is that the missionary has gone in and has pulled people from their social, familial, and religious context and said, you need now to take on a new identity. And missiologists have said the problem with that is that the identity you're forcing on them is your Western identity, not that which is grounded in the gospel. Extraction is one of the major issues of debate within missions today. Relatedly, as you've heard already from the discussion on imperialism, is the concern of importation, that Westerners have added to the gospel by demanding man-made structures. Again, we'll say more about that in just a bit. Now, with those sort of general understandings about the criticisms of missions, I want to tell you a little bit about the history of this, just to frame where we're going in discussing insider movements. First of all, there has been, in the last many decades, the rise of what we call the soft sciences. The soft sciences are those that would be, what would be included is psychology, sociology, cultural anthropology. And these disciplines have taken a life of their own. You can get degrees in these things now in ways that are unprecedented in history. Now, I am not saying that all of that is bad in its own right. My point is not that, but simply to state the case that these soft sciences have now taken a life of their own. Associated with that has been the rise of the discipline of missiology. Maybe some of you know self-proclaimed missiologists. A missiologist is one who sees himself or herself as one who studies the discipline, the the task of missions, the paradigms of missions. Now, why are these two things together? Well, in the course of the development of missiology in the 20th and now into the 21st century, what has shaped missiology more than anything else has been these soft sciences. Now, why is that the case? Well, as we think about the history of contemporary missions, we can only rightfully do that by looking at this particular institution. Now, my goal is not to pick on Fuller, but you need to be aware that thousands of missionaries today, and that it continues to be the case, are studying at Fuller Seminary. And... Fuller has become the primary entity here in the United States of America for preparing people for missions. Back in 1965, Fuller's School of World Mission was founded. 1965, I'll give it away right away. That was the year I was born. And that particular year, the School of World Mission was established. It is the same year that the doctrinal statement at Fuller removed inerrancy the very same time. Now that is a not merely an historical coincidence. Because what we find when you remove the Bible as the primary authority for thinking about things theological, 
for thinking about things anthropological, for thinking about things cultural, there is a vacuum left that will be filled by something. And guess what has filled that vacuum? The soft sciences, cultural anthropology, sociology, and psychology. In missions, primarily cultural anthropology and sociology. Fuller's School of World Mission actually some years ago changed its name to the School of Intercultural Studies. Now, the argument has been given that the reason for that is that we want to allow missionaries to go into closed contexts and we don't want on their diploma School of World Mission. I'm only sympathizing with that so far. And the reason that I only sympathize so far with that is because that with one click of a mouse, someone can look at someone's diploma and realize that the School of Intercultural Studies is at Fuller Theological Seminary. It's not really that difficult to find out. The reason that I would say that in part this has taken place is because of the paradigm shift in terms of ultimate authority as it relates to missions. You would be shocked if you knew how many mission agencies in this country do not require any sort of biblical education for missionaries. It has been replaced with other ideas, entities that are calling people to an understanding that what grants success in missions is not Scripture. It's something else. Part of this debate uh, about the, the place of soft sciences and missiology and the Bible, you can actually read in this classic work on the debate, The Battle for the Bible by Harold Lenzel, just mentioned that by way of passing. But the new method that actually has now shaped missions is indeed that the Bible is culturally constrained or confined And it is culturally interpreted. In other words, you are a product of your culture. The place where you're going is a product of your culture. There is nothing authoritative that shapes what you do other than your struggle along to try to make sense of the culture and the people to whom you're going to bear witness. So how does this relate then to insiders? Well, what is an insider? Let me provide a couple of definitions for you will actually fill in the gaps, I think, in terms of identifying what insider thought really is. An insider follows Jesus, but avoids formal and explicit expressions of the Christian faith. In other words, the gospel is something internal. There are no external requirements. You maintain those things according to your own particular cultural experience and self-identity. Another feature of this is that an insider considers Jesus to be his Lord and Savior, but remains in his family, his culture, and his religion. Now I'll come back again to that later. Insider movements are groups where such things are practiced. In other words, if you went into a Buddhist context and you witnessed insider movements, there might be Buddhist followers of Jesus 
who cling to their Buddhist religion but claim to follow Jesus at the same time. And what this paradigm says is that is not only okay, but the argument of insider advocacy is that anything different than that fails the integrity test of the gospel that we just read about in Galatians 1. Now, the applications of this may vary. There is the issue of self-identification. I am a Muslim. I was born in a Muslim home. I live in a Muslim context. I live in a Muslim state. I am a Muslim. Nothing changes that. If I follow Jesus, I follow Jesus as a Muslim because that is who I am. Another manifestation of this that gets far more practical. If a Muslim follower of Jesus determines in his own mind or her own mind that they are to continue doing the rituals of Islam, a Muslim man might go do the ritual washings and enter into the mosque. And it is in the mosque that he continues in his Muslim practices but calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ. There is also a a major issue of discussion within insider movement advocacy about the propriety of saying the shahada. The shahada is the first pillar of Islam, and that states there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his rasul, his prophet, his messenger. Should a Muslim follower of Jesus continue to articulate the shahada? Should a Muslim follower of Jesus continue practicing salat? Salat is the second pillar of Islam. It relates to the, if, you're, if you've traveled internationally, you know what it's like to live in a Muslim, or to be in a Muslim context, and to hear the, the wails from the towers. It's a call to prayer. Should a Muslim follower of Jesus perform the salat? These are matters that insider movements, uh, advocates, while they differ on the applications of it, all of this is free and open discussion. Some even would say that it is appropriate for a Messianic Muslim, a Muslim follower of Jesus, to go on the religious hajj, the, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Now, probably already you're going, I don't see how these things fit together. I hope you're going, I don't see how these things fit together. Here are the contentions of our I am advocates. The first is this. Insider movement is happening. I am is happening. One of the strongest contentions of the leading proponents and advocates of I am paradigm claim that they did not create the paradigm. They're just watching what the Spirit is doing. And the role then is not to corrupt that, but rather to do what we can to facilitate it. As Kevin Higgins puts it, God is the true insider. Missionaries then 
ought not interfere with what the Spirit is doing. You all are a well-taught church. You're probably familiar with the debates about the, the movement and work of the Holy Spirit. One of the underlying assumptions, in fact, necessary components of insider movement advocacy is that the Spirit is not bound to do what he claims that he is bound to do in Scripture. He goes well beyond that. The gospel, then, of Jesus Christ, I am, advocates contend, is not concerned with religion and culture. In fact, Rebecca Lewis writes this, No one should consider one religious form of faith in Christ to be superior to another. Jesus is not concerned about your religion. That's the argument. Rebecca Lewis, for those of you who are interested in historical context or historical relationships, Rebecca is married to Tim Lewis, who is the international director of Frontiers Mission. Frontiers Mission has actually grown out of the, the fuller context, and I mean that in the capital F fuller context, um, fuller seminary context. And her father is Ralph Winter. Some of you will know that name through your study of missions. Rebecca will also say that new Jesus followers will remain in and transform their networks. What she means by that, and what other advocates of IM mean by this, is that the primary method by which the gospel comes is that it works internally like yeast in another religious context, and that context is the way in which the gospel develops there, and it's going to look very different then it looks in other contexts. That's the way the Spirit works, or so the argument goes. And so, driving all of this is the idea of how to think about religion. Rebecca Lewis, in her article on the integrity of the gospel, says this, there were two religions in the first century. There was the Jewish religion with its religious practices. There was also the Gentile one with its religious practices. And the argument goes like this. Jesus was not concerned to change other people's religions. Neither were the apostles. The way in which this is attempted to be defended is, these are actually two of the critical texts for I Am Advocates. John 4. What takes place in John 4? Who remembers? Woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. Jesus comes and speaks to her. And I am advocates say, note how Jesus does not tell her to become a Jew. He tells her to go back to her Samaritan village. Excuse me, I didn't mean to spit on you there. I get a little carried away. You need some windshield wipers here for your glasses. I'll, I'll back up, okay? Um... Jesus did not tell her to go and become a Jew. Now, I want you to appreciate the underlying assumptions with that interpretation of John 4. What is John 4 about? It's about Jesus coming in redemptive history and fulfilling the promises of the Old Covenant 
It wasn't about a cultural Jewishness. It was about Jesus fulfilling the revelation of God given to the old covenant people. And now everything changes because Jesus is here. Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council. I am advocates look at this text and they say, well, we see the Jew-Gentile, two different religions going on here. And what do we see the apostles do? They do not tell the Gentiles to do Jewish things. So therefore, on that basis, we conclude the apostles are not concerned with one's religion. Now, I will ask your pastor, I don't want to spend more time here, I'll ask your pastor to work you through Acts 15. New assignment for you, David. You've probably done that well already. The interpretive paradigm in part that is in operation here is that these I am advocates look at the New Testament, and I ought to actually highlight the fact that the primary documents in the Scripture for I am advocacy are the Gospels and Acts. They're far more important than the epistles. And they look at what takes place in the Gospels and look at what takes place in, the, in Acts and they interpret it through a cultural grid that sees Jewishness and Gentileness in their religions and traditions to be true in their own rights and that the Gospel's not concerned with those things. They're already interpreting those texts through the lenses of a cultural grid. And so they look at the the New Testament and say, it's really about how to do missions. Now let me stop and say, I am not saying that the New Testament doesn't tell us how to do missions. What I am saying is that the way in which we get to the proper application is to understand the way in which the Old and New Testaments fit together. That Jesus is the yes and amen to all the promises that God gave to his people under the old covenant. We do not get to the application of missiological principle until we get to the core of redemptive history itself. And appreciate the significance of the arrival of Jesus Christ from that vantage point. Argument, Jesus and the apostles didn't make Gentiles Jews. Therefore, we must not make Muslims Christians. That's the line of reasoning in some fashion here. Theology and practice then must grow from within and not be imposed from without. One of the stunning features of the I am paradigm in all the literature that I've read, and I've read it ad nauseum, I don't want to read any more of it, is this notion that discipleship occurs by passivity. Now, what do I mean by that? We just let these things happen. We back off. Missions is best done with my feet on the desk. And the the thinking behind this is that if I get too involved, I'm going to corrupt it by my own cultural entrapment. Now, one of the things that that begs, I think, is the question of the role of the church, the established church in missions. One of the things that's underlying underlying everything that I've said to you already is the fact that missions has taken a life of its own separate from the church. It is the church's call to proclaim the the gospel to the four corners of the earth. It belongs to the church under the headship and the authority of the head of the church himself, Jesus Christ. 
Some further argumentation. I want you to be exposed again to Rebecca Lewis. She is the most articulate of all of the I Am Advocates. And she says this, If we demand that all believers adopt our own religious traditions and identity, then we are actually undermining the integrity of the gospel. She goes on and talks about two features of how I Am takes place. First is this, the gospel takes root within pre-existing communities or social networks, which become the main expression of quote-unquote church in that context. Believers are not gathered from diverse social networks to create a church. A couple things I'll say. For her, church is in quotations because she wants you to know she doesn't mean church the way you mean church. Let me start with that. The other thing I want you to note that she is arguing against extraction. New followers of Christ don't leave their existing connections. They don't form a new body. They are not a visible church disconnected from the already present social and religious network. It's to take place inside. It is not to be extracted. People are not to be extracted. Secondly, believers retain their identity as members of their socio-religious community while living under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of the Bible. What is non-negotiable for this form of missiological application is that your identity does not change. So what are the conclusions here? Well, stay inside. This is not just a statement about winter in the Northeast. This is a theological statement. Stay inside. People should remain in their religions and cultures and follow Jesus there. Westerners should accept, and I quote here again, the non-Christian gospel. Remain and retain. Stay where you are. Keep your identity. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are still a Muslim one. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are still a Hindu one or a Buddhist one. Non-negotiable is that core identity that you perceive. Missionary then become a Muslim to Muslims. The challenge here is, is multifold. One is that we need to appreciate the level of investment that is associated with this because they view the way in which you do church here at Covenant Presbyterian in Lakeland as far more about your own social connections and traditions than it has to do anything at all with Scripture. You are just a product of your own cultural context. One of the ways, and this is an extreme form of this, but I just want you to be aware of this. This does happen. It has not happened as much as as late, as best as I can tell. But I know of cases, for example, in Indonesia where missionaries would go to Indonesia and in order to reach Muslims for Christ, they would enter the, the, the mosque, declare the shahada, and convert to Islam as a means to reaching the Muslim people. 
Now, that's an extreme form of this, but the paradigm provides no boundaries to prevent that sort of application of these principles. So how do we assess this? Well, the first thing that's probably been abundantly clear to you already is that IM makes culture and cultural analysis the final authority. Cultural anthropology must govern our interpretation of Scripture because we are necessarily bound by our own cultural grid from which we can never escape. The problems with this are multifold, not the least of which is that such cultural authority relativizes the comprehensive and categorical force of the gospel. Begs the question about the nature of biblical authority. And in this way, biblical authority and redemptive history get buried beneath a cultural interpretive grid. So the theological imperative becomes cultural negotiability. And perhaps the greatest concern I have about all of this is that I am encourages syncretism. It's not Jesus or Islam. It's not binary. It is Jesus in Islam, or in some cases, as certain authors have argued, it is Jesus as Islam. A few years ago, I spoke at a conference on Muslim missions, and I decided to entitle my, my lecture There is no God but God, and Jesus is his Son. You see, the way in which Scripture lays out the finality of the gospel, the finality of God's purposes in Jesus Christ, Jesus is not God's latest word, he is his last word. There is nothing to come after him. And to claim, as as is being argued here, that Islam is something that ought to be respected in the way in which I am advocates would have us respect it, actually clouds the ultimate and categorical authority of Jesus Christ over his church. The next thing I would say is, as we look at I am practices and perceptions, what about saying the Shahada? Well, Rick Brown, one of the, another uh, advocate of I am, has, has given varying ways in which a Muslim follower of Jesus can still say the Shahada and remain faithful to Jesus. He actually has an article in which he, he argues for dissimulation. And for those of you that don't have a pocket dictionary, that's another word for lying. And, and, and what Rick Brown contends is that there's a legitimate form of dissimulation for one in a Muslim context. One of the things that has stricken me about this, you know, there's always the accusation, it's easy for you in the West to blame Muslims for hiding their faith. You don't face the daily persecution that they face. Well, there's a certain truth in that. I don't. Even when I go and teach in Muslim lands, which I've done a number of times, often in secret, it is more than likely I'm getting out. And it's often the case that they end up in prison for various reasons at various times, or worse. But I've had Muslim converts to Christ repeatedly tell me that the I am paradigm compromises the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And they are telling us in the West, and this is why this matters to you, because it is your responsibility as a church to be involved in ensuring that those missionaries whom you support, whom your denomination supports, whom your denomination sends, it is critical for you that you are involved in ensuring that the message that they proclaim is the unequivocally clear message that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no other. That is your responsibility. And I would say to you, in light of that, that when it comes to these matters and the arguments that many will say that missions is messy, and you will have missionaries that will come to you and say, well, you don't really understand my context. I'm not going to get into all the details. Flags should start going up. Because this is pervasive. What I'm talking to you about here has gone under the radar for a long time. You would be stunned by how common and how popular this is around the world. I know of many, many situations, and I don't know of all of them, that involve hundreds of thousands of people around the world. What about baptism? One of the features of of IM advocacy is that these sacraments of the church can often become negotiable. Dudley Woodbury and uh, John Travis, two IM proponents, have written about this and have talked about how in certain contexts baptisms do take place. But the very assumption of the article is that's up to them. We leave it in their hands. If Jesus is head of the church, the decisions about what we do are under his authority, not under ours. I don't care what tribe, tongue, or nation from which you come. What about identity? Well, you've heard this matter of identity surfacing over and over again. I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to give you a nuanced argument for just a minute, but it is very important for you to catch this. As you ask the question, who am I? What is my identity? That question needs to be framed from not what is my sense of identity, but actually who am I? Let me use a parallel that I used in Presbytery yesterday. Again, you're a well-taught church. Many churches in which I would go, if I asked the question, define guilt. The way many in the pew would respond is, well, guilt is how I feel when I have done something wrong. Well, that may be a consequence of guilt, but guilt is not a feeling you feel. Guilt is an objective reality that is true whether you feel guilty or not as it relates to the violation of God's law and God's covenant. Your identity is similar. It really doesn't matter what you feel is your identity. What does Scripture say about your identity? What does the Apostle Paul say about identity, for example, in Romans 1? Everyone knows God. Everybody's accountable to God. And they suppress the knowledge of God. Every man is a covenant breaker. And it is only by the covenant keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great mediator and guarantor of the covenant. It is only by Him that you move from guilt to being clothed in righteousness. This is categorical. Your identity is not what you perceive, it is who you actually are before God. This is actually tremendously relevant to missions. 
When I go into a missionary context in which people have a sense of identity that does not align itself with the scriptures, I know something about them that they don't yet know. I know something about them about the way in which they've suppressed the knowledge of God, and what I need to do is to teach them actually who they are. How do I know who they are? Because God has spoken. What happens when my identity in Christ confronts my culture and my religion? It is not a question of whether I follow Jesus or not. I don't follow him based upon my own determination of what is theologically right and wrong. I follow him as the head of the church, Ephesians 1. Some practical problems. You go into, I'll just give this illustration. Right now, I just got a message this week from a pastor, a Bangladeshi pastor, who uh, is, his greater challenge, believe it or not, in Bangladesh is not the Muslims, it is the insiders. He is a Muslim convert himself. His whole family abandoned him. He came to faith in Christ because a missionary, when he was a teenage boy, missionary came to his door missionary gave him the gospel, told him the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. He was enraged. He was a young man that was devoted to the Quran, devoted to being the best Muslim he could possibly be. His father was one of the leaders in the community. And he invited a couple of his friends and said, listen, we're gonna, I'm, I've invited this guy to come over again. Let's take him out. So he, in a friendly way, said, yeah, come back. I'd be interested more in hearing about Jesus. They left him nearly half dead on the side of the road. He began to feel, feel guilty. That young man whom he almost killed came back again. And it was because of the love expressed of the absolute categorical difference in the gospel that that man is now the leading church in the, church of, in the, the Presbyterian Church of Bangladesh. He is now uh, leading a visible church movement in a context in which insider movements got their incubation. Bangladesh was the test tube. And it is in that context now where the children of insiders are now getting married. Whom do they marry? Most of them marry other Muslims. And the syncretism and confusion continues. What I heard from this minister this week is that what he is facing now is that the Muslims... Muslim followers of Jesus, these Messianic Muslims, these insiders now want a Christian burial... How is he to navigate someone who has claimed to follow Jesus as a Muslim and the family members are now asking for a Christian burial? The complications become very, very ready and difficult. I am in the gospel. This is a quote from an article I wrote a year and a half ago, and it says this, Imagine if possible, Elijah calling the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18, to worship Jehovah God and encouraging them to do so in their temples, at their altars, and according to their familiar pagan practices. Such a proposal sounds preposterous. Yet the idea of a converted Muslim practicing the five pillars of Islam is I am gospel. That is the way in which I emers would have us believe to think about the gospel. How would we reckon with a text like 1 Kings 18? I am then as guilty of another more sinister form of imperialism. What do I mean by that? Remember the critique of the modern missions movement? That we are importing our cultural ideas, our traditions into other lands and calling it Christian? 
I would suggest to you that what I am advocates are doing by promoting Jesus' followers in Islam, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, are actually importing an imperialism of a far more sophisticated and damaging fashion. That their idea of missions is now being forced upon those. And believers who are true converts in Christ are saying, churches in the United States of America, stop funding this syncretism. They're begging for it. Let me let you hear from a couple of Muslim converts. CMB is a Christian of Muslim background. MBB is a Muslim background believer. Most of them are now preferring this because it puts Christ first. Not only is this concept improper, it is like poison mixed into food. It is a great sin and a clear hypocrisy for a Somali Christian to say, I am Muslim. This is a Muslim convert dealing with insider movements in his own land. My friend, the message of the gospel offends Muslims. I agree with you, but it is okay. Don't worry. God will take care of the hearer. It is his message. Keeping Muslims from being offended will not further their conversion to Christ. And he goes on to talk about how radically offended he was when the gospel was preached to him. I have never seen a Muslim convert to Christ who was not offended first before coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. Yes, we need to offend them by being very clear about the teachings of Christ. Fikret Bocek in Izmir, Turkey. As I close here, I'm going to turn us back to the Apostle Paul. I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They are insider movement advocates. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Before I open up for questions, let me just make these last few considerations before you. What should we say about Messianic Judaism? Some of you may have already been thinking about this. I would suggest to you that we need to encourage those who have converted to Jesus Christ, who are of Jewish background, to realize that the old forms have been put away in Jesus Christ. I would not want to say that Muslim follower of Christ and Jewish follower of Christ are exactly parallel, but there is significant overlap here that we must address. Where does contextualization end and syncretism or idolatry begin? We will only answer that question when we rely upon the clear, expressed teaching of Scripture to guide us in our thinking about missions. How should the church reclaim missions from the hands of the independent expert missiologists? I can't tell you how many missiologists have come in this debate, some of them actually to me directly, and have said, you just don't get it. You don't understand. You don't understand how culturally constrained you are. You do not understand the field of missiology. We are the experts. Listen to us. If I could provide a parallel, there was something going on in the Reformation at the time that Martin Luther showed up. 
in which there was a magisterial authority of the church that told the Christian people that they were too stupid, that they could not understand the Bible, just listen to those that would teach them. What the missiologists are doing is similar. There is a a missiological magisterium that wants us to fall at their feet and say, no, we've never gotten this right. The church in the West has got it all wrong. We need to listen to the missiologists and change everything that we're doing. I would suggest to you that to do so is to deny the clarity and the authority of Scripture. And that every missiologist needs to bow his knee before the authority of Scripture and not claim that he has something of a leg up on Scripture's authority. Missions belongs to the church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. How are we, as the church of Christ, going to reclaim missions... We will not do so passively. We must re-engage a very non-churched missiological focus that dominates 20th and 21st century missions. We must not sit back. It is time for us to act and obey the Lord Jesus Christ and do missions the way that he has called us to do them. Let me open it up for some questions. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was thinking as I was listening, I thought I detected a certain parallelism with the way Pentecostalism has crept into all denominations. Mm -hmm. Is there a similar thing, or is this I Am movement pretty much within our own denomination, or is... uh, That's my question. No, it's a great question. A, let me answer your last statement first and simply say, no, this is not just merely a PCA matter. In fact, I would even argue that it's not largely a PCA matter. But I would also say that it is not, the PCA is not disconnected from this in various places through its missionaries and other ways. Um, Your question about the, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is an insightful one. Uh, Let me give just a bit of an anecdote. As part of our research over the course of the last three years, I went out and spent two full days with the leading missiologist at Fuller. And uh, it was a fascinating time. It was a disturbing time as well in many ways. But one of the things that I actually explicitly asked them in this room was about their doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I, I discovered something that has always been implicit in their writings, but it has never been explicit. And while I'm not free to give you the details, I agree that I would not name names or any of those sorts of things from these conversations. I am free to say what I'm getting ready to. And that is that I am thinking and other forms of missiology that share this paradigm presuppose a, what we would call a continuationist view of the Holy Spirit. They presuppose that the Spirit it speaks more than what is in Scripture, acts in ways that would go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. That is presupposed, so much so that it's not explicitly stated frequently. But that is indeed the case, and it is an insightful question. Yes, sir? Has the PCA as the denomination spoken to this issue in any way that you can Thank you for your question. Let me give you a brief history on that as well. Back in 2011 at our General Assembly, um, there was an overture that came from the Chesapeake Presbytery. It was, enti- it was Overture 9. It was entitled Faithful Witness. And in this overture was a, uh, well, actually as it developed on the floor, originally in the original version of the overture, a study committee was not included. 
But during the process, a study committee was added to that overture, and that overture passed. And a study committee on insider movements was actually appointed. I happened to be the chair of that committee. I was asked by the moderator to be involved in this, and I have been. Um, This overture, and I don't want to go too long here, but you need to hear this part. This overture had really two prominent features. One concerned Bible translation in Muslim lands and others like it. Let me give you an illustration. In, I mentioned Bangladesh, I'll just go there. It's not the only place in which this has happened. But a modern translation in Bangladesh of the New Testament has made the decision to change certain words that might be offensive to a Muslim ear. For example, Allah has no son. So places where there would be language of the sonship of Jesus Christ would be changed to something non-familial, like prince would be a back translation of that. So we addressed the matter of familial names of God in a report that we delivered to the General Assembly in 2012. The second part of our task was to engage what I've just presented to you, and believe it or not, in brief, (laughs) this evening, um, and to provide a report to the General Assembly, which we did last year. In that, what turned out to be a a 90-minute debate... Um, it was evident, uh, I, I hesitate to say this, but it was a public event, so I will. Um, it was evident that the majority of the men in the room had not read the report. And in the course of that, there was a debate that ensued on, the, on Allah, the, God, the, the name for God, Allah, that is employed in Arabic, and actually in some other translations as well. And that debate actually dominated the floor discussions, so much so that as the debate ensued, and frankly there was a lot of ignorance that came forth in that debate on both sides, um, the assembly basically painted itself in a corner and said, we don't know how to get ourselves out of this mess. We will ask you now, we're going to recommit the study committee for another year. So in June of this year, our study committee is actually going to be presenting another report to the General Assembly and would surely covet your prayers for that, that our church would act in a way that is proper as it relates to these matters. So the PCA is involved, actually very much publicly now involved, by this overture and by the appointment of this study committee, and these are matters that are going to be on our docket for our General Assembly in Houston in June. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, Bill? Dr. Garner, we uh, here in the PCA uh, have an agency called Missions to the World. Can we be confident that missionaries sent out by that agency have been inoculated to the IM movement and therefore immune to its effects? It's a, it's a really important question. The way I would respond to that, I think, best in this context would be to say the following. No church in our denomination ought to send any missionary, I don't care what association that missionary has, without pressing them on the hard questions of the paradigm that is operating for them in their missiological minds. And I would say to you that... Um, for various reasons, uh, but even ecclesiological ones, I would encourage local churches like this one to be directly involved in those sorts of questionings 
uh, questions to um, current missionaries as well as to, to future ones. Yes, sir. Yes, I'm just wondering how much in your assessment, and you mentioned quite a bit about the uh, soft sciences coming in and yes. changing missions, how much of the insider movement do you see as just just a resentment of Western culture and civilization mm. and the history of Christendom in general? Yeah. It's an insightful question. Um, I can only give you, I mean, in some ways the question is, is, a, is a plea for my opinion on this. So I, I won't give you more than that. Um, I do think it plays a role. Um, there is an anti-Western bias around the world. Um, some of it justifiable, other parts of it not. You know, honestly, one of the things I am sympathetic with is why those in a Muslim context would look at the word Christian and think sexual perversion. Uh, It's an unfortunate reality, but our culture and nation has been characterized by these things, and they look at the West as Christian. So is all of that anti-Western bias the fault of, of, of the Muslim people and the Muslim nation? I don't think so. I think we bear a level of culpability for that. But I would say that the missiologists, which is really more along the lines of your question, are in some ways, maybe consciously in certain cases, but not always consciously, seeking to get an, a, 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 an inroads here responding to that sort of anti-Western bias. So I do think it's there how much is any man's guess. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, last year we did a study on, on science and evolution and creation and all these kinds of things which are permeating even the, even the, the BCA. The idea of enlarging the tent, that we'll be no longer be relevant if we cannot accept this, uh, you called it the, uh, the, mad, the uh, missiology, uh, missiological ra- ra- register, uh, magisterium, excuse me, uh-huh. as opposed, and I would call it scientific magisterium, in the, in the sense yeah. that, that we, if, if we no longer are going to do this, we're long, no longer going to be relevant, mm-hmm. okay? And if I can say this uh, humbly, uh, it's like, you know, poor God. If, if, right. we, if, if we don't kind of give in to these areas, mm-hmm. he can no longer be relevant, relevant nor effective right. uh, and certainly uh, uh, would not <clears throat> be the God that he, that he proclaims to be. So just your, is there a parallel, parallel there? Oh, I, I think it's an insightful point, and, and I'm not sure there more than just my opinion, again, is asked. But yes, I do think there is a, a, a parallel there and would suggest to you that... Um, <laughs> That there, the, the manifestations of what we see in I am, some of you are familiar with the emerging and emergent church movement, which is just another manifestation of this same paradigm. Um, what we are seeing in terms of the debates on, uh, in, in science and its trustworthiness, frankly, in, ignores even the, the very insightful co- comments of a Thomas Kuhn and the scientific paradigms, how they shift from one generation to another. We don't care. I think the, that our, our, as a people, we are more committed to rebelling against God than we are about anything else. And it doesn't matter what form it takes. And I think this is, ironically, a missiological form of rebellion against the God of mission. Yes, sir. I see how the 
insider movement seems to be concerned with dealing with Islam and Muslims, but uh, at what point and how do they deal with like cultures that don't really have a religious background like that? At what mm-hmm. point, you know, there's cultures that have no concept of sin or need of forgiveness and right. things like that. And uh, I mean, at what point do they just say you can be an atheist Christian? Well, it, it, it's, it's actually an interesting point, and one of the arguments that's made even in Muslim context, you know, there are a lot of Muslims who are self-proclaimed atheists as well, um, that live in a Muslim worldview, Muslim climate, and would self-identify as Muslims, but would be functionally and even in some cases intellectually atheistic. Um, but that's not really your question. Uh, I think the best way to answer that is if Rebecca Lewis was in this room today, what she would say to you, we don't start insider movements. They start themselves they usually don't start in context like that. So we need to use another culturally appropriate paradigm to engage places like the Czech Republic that is dominated by atheism. And so I think that would be the response is we don't start these things anyway. Does that, that may not satisfy your question. So basically, if it doesn't start on its own, we'll just forget about those people altogether? No, I think that to be fair to them, it's not forget about those people altogether, but that there would be another missiological paradigm that would need to be enacted in that context. That's the way in which they would respond. That these things don't apply because these insider movements aren't happening in the Czech Republic. So however we're going to do missions there is going to look very, very different. So I would say to you, in some measure, without getting uh, too far down this pathway, that one of the the large features of of missions under the, uh, the umbrella of evangelicalism and the Reformed churches is public justice. So we go into places uh, like Czech Republic or go into our cities and try to proclaim a a language of justice, public justice, that uh, is the way to the hearts of these people. Um, That would be a paradigm that might well be employed. Thank you. Okay, Pastor, I don't think we see uh, any others. I've put them to sleep. Oh, I'm sorry. I think we have one more here. At least one's still awake. While he's on his way, Dr. Garner, how might, help our people understand how might the essential doctrine of the Trinity be handled by an, a missionary who is committed to this paradigm? Yeah. Um, I shared yesterday at Presbytery um, a, a quotation from B.B. Warfield in his collected shorter writings in which he actually addresses under the, the, the title of the article, I think, is The Perils of Missions. And uh, what he makes comment on is how he has heard from, directly from missionaries who are celebrating the fact that they've been able to, to, to witness in a Muslim context by framing the Trinity in a way that is not offensive. And Warfield points out the fact that if in some way you find a Muslim who is happy with your doctrine of the Trinity, the Muslim does not understand the biblical doctrine of the Trinity and you have changed your doctrine. And I think along the lines of what Dr. McWilliams is asking here, it is not infrequent. In fact, Charles Kraft, 
who is one of the, the key missiological writers of a past generation that has really shaped the I am paradigms and, uh, paradigm and others like it, um, actually tried to argue that Trinitarian doctrine is really well overstated for the Christian. And, and that we need to not spend time there if we really want to reach people for Jesus. Um, so I guess the short answer to your question it would, there's, is not a monolithic way in which this is addressed, but some IMers would still want to, to, to do everything they could to uphold the doctrine of the Trinity. I want to be fair. But many would not. Many would want to water it down. Uh, back uh, about the time you were born, there was there was an. an I did tell you that, didn't yes. I? Yes. There was another movement underway in yes. this country, and it was the Jesus movement. Yes, sir. And I read about it. <laughs> so it would seem to me that there's some parallel uh, between the IM movement and the Jesus movement. And not only the Jesus movement, but any movement that has a disdain for doctrine mm-hmm. and also for this um, intense push to assimilate into whatever culture one finds themselves whenever they receive Jesus that they just stay in that culture? Mm-hmm. Are, are, the, are all of these things in the ultimately connected? Yes. <laughs> Could you elaborate? <laughs> I think the best way to get to that, and I'll try to be brief because I want to let you go, um, but I, I would say that There has been throughout the history of the church, if you read church history, there have been advocates for a faithful expression of doctrine that have always been juxtaposed by those who have said, let's not concern ourselves so much with doctrine. In fact, if you do so, you're really not being loving. And I think that one of the clear features of biblical revelation is that a clear articulation of truth is the only loving thing. And that if we actually really have a desire to see the nations come to Jesus, we will present Jesus to them, not something less. How could we dare say that it is loving to present someone a false Jesus that damns them for eternity? The stakes are that high. And I I say that with no desire for rhetorical flourish. I say that just simply to say that it is truth and love together. And and the, the faithful proclamation of Jesus will be loving. It will be winsome, but it will be true. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Uh, do, you, do, you see any, do you see any of the I Am movement functioning in this country? I, 
I'm sorry, may I ask uh, you to repeat that? Do you see any of the IM move, movement functioning in this country? Oh, in this country. Through, through, even, through evangelism or whatever? Well, I would say I see what drives the IM paradigm in a context in which there is belligerence to the gospel, which is where IM takes place in a Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim context. I see the paradigm that shapes what I've suggested to you today functioning in this country everywhere. In, in many ways, even in the way in which we're treating matters as it relates to same-sex marriage, the paradigm that drives that debate is the very same paradigm that shapes this notion of cultural relativity that governs everything. I would suggest to you that that paradigm is not any different in some ways than what I'm talking about here. But it's not I am. It's just a different manifestation of the paradigm that shapes I am. Yeah. The last question. The last question. I, I've heard that already three times, Pastor. <laughs> what is the influence of the Catholic Church in the Insider Movement? Because what I hear is a lot of what the Catholic Church has done. Yeah. Go into a culture, adopt the culture, take those saints or whatever they call them, make yeah. them Catholic, mm-hmm. and then you know, just get into the way that people find it easier to become yeah. Catholic. Yeah, my, the short answer to this is I am not aware of any Catholic scholars that are writing and addressing this. However, I do appreciate the connection you're making, and you're exactly right to draw the connections because it's very similar. But I do not right offhand know of any Catholic scholars that are, or missiologists that are writing about these things this way. But I, that may be something I've missed. That's a great way to end. Something I've missed. That's great. <laughs> all right. Thank you all very much. We are thankful for the way in which the Lord is using you at Westminster Seminary and in the church and for uh, using your life, a large part of your life, in dealing with this very essential issue in missions today. And we would like to give glory to God but express our appreciation to you for being in our midst tonight. Our Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Bless especially Dr. Garner and his family and his work at Westminster Theological Seminary and in the PCA and at Proclamation Presbyterian Church. And we ask that you will give to us sound and solid missionaries. We know so many. Increase them, Father. Send out more. And we pray that the name of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, will be exalted in the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.